Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning, North Shore. Ah, you're surprisingly awake for this time. That's good to know. So my name is Mark Milbrecht, and glad to be here with you guys today. And, you know, I was just thinking, I can't believe it's, we're already knocking on the door of Thanksgiving, right? How many of you uh, are having fish? Well, there's a reason why I asked that. As you know, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been talking about the story of Jonah, and we're going to get right into that. But before uh, we do, I have a fish story that I'm going to share with you guys. We heard a great story from Pastor Scott last week about uh, his fishing experience, so I thought, you know, i got to share with you mine, right? So a number of years ago, I was in Alaska, and I had a chance to go on a fishing charter out uh, out in Homer, past Homer, and we were halibut fishing, right? And so we got out to the fishing grounds, and Captain lined us up, and he's like, okay, here's how it's going to go down, you know, and he explained how we're going to fish for these halibut, and he showed us the bait, you know, and they're all about this big, and it's like, you're going to catch, you know, maybe a 15, 20, 25, 30, you know, maybe a little bit bigger than that, but if you really want a big halibut, and he pulls out this huge head, it was like a lingcod head, if you know how big those things are. It was probably the size of my head, right? And he's like, if you want to put this on your hook, you're going to catch a big fish. Why? Because all the little ones can't eat this thing. It's too big. But you may go all day and catch nothing. Are you willing to do that? Sure. <laughs> right? Go big or go home. That's what I always say. So I'm like, all right, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So, you know, I heave that giant chunk of meat over the side of the boat, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Nothing happens, right? Everyone else is catching fish, you know, up to, I think, 40 pounds was a good-sized halibut that someone caught. And I'm just, just waiting, right? And nothing's happening. And we get towards the end of the day, and the captain's like, okay, we got just a couple more minutes, and we're going to wrap things up. And I'm like, oh, man. I was so hoping for that big fish, right? And then, boom! My rod goes down to the water, right? And I'm, the fight is on. And I start heaving this thing. It you know, feels like I'm dragging a barn door through the water, right? I don't know why people say that. Who's ever dragged a barn door through the water, right? Anyone? No, of course not. It's a bad analogy. But I'm pulling this thing up, and then it's like zzz, 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 back to the bottom, right? So I'm just fighting this thing, and after a few minutes, everyone had cleared out at this point, right, just to give me room. But there was a guy on the other side of the stern, and he was still fishing. And then all of a sudden, his rod hits the water, right? So now we both have big fish on. We finally get this halibut to the surface, and it's so big that the captain has to shoot it to get it in the boat, Right? so it doesn't break anyone's leg when it's flopping around. <laughs> well, when we brought that thing on board, not only was there a hook in its mouth, but there was also a hook and line and, and um, weight like wrapped around its head. So one of us had hooked it legitimately in the mouth. The other one had just wrapped around it at some point as it was scurrying around the bottom of the ocean, right? Who was that? 
who was the one that actually caught the fish. And so the captain clipped the hook and he handed it to me and he said, when I get done unwrapping this tangled mess, if you've got the line that has no hook, you're the one that caught that fish. And I'm like, please, Lord, please let it be me. Right? So he spends, I don't know how hours it seemed like, unwrapping all the line from this fish and finally holds up that line that had no hook. And it was, it was mine. 132 pounder. Huge fish, right? It could have swallowed me. Well, not quite. But, um, but that's my fish story. And uh, it was incredible, just the anticipation of all that. But we're going to talk about another fish story today. This is from Jonah. And as you know, last week, Pastor Scott took us through chapter 2. If, if you uh, could start bringing the Bibles forward, that would be fantastic. Um, go ahead and grab uh, a Bible if you need one or open your app or, or get one you know, if you're at home so that we can read the Word of God together. And we're, um, as you know, Pastor Scott talked last week about a prayer that Jonah prayed from literally the belly of the fish, a prayer seeking God's face, a prayer asking for his grace, a prayer acknowledging who God is. And God had mercy and compassion on Jonah and literally had him vomited out of the fish's mouth onto dry land. So that brings us to chapter 3, and I'm going to go ahead and read that, and you can read along with me, and then we're going to pull it apart and look at some different pieces to that. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the example that you gave us with Jonah even last week as he prayed for your grace and he prayed for your mercy and he acknowledged who he was and he acknowledged who you are. 
And God, I pray that we would do the same, that we would seek your face, that we would repent of our evil ways, that we would acknowledge who you are, and that we would ask for your grace and your kindness and your mercy, and that knowing, God, that you would forgive us as we do that, that act of contrition, so to speak. Thank you, Lord, for that example that we had in Jonah. Thank you for that example that we see in a, in a very strange place with these Assyrian people from Nineveh. That's a surprise, Lord. And I pray, God, that you'd teach us what you want to teach us this morning, that you'd open our hearts to your Holy Spirit and allow us to see your word as you want us to see it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to talk about two things primarily. God's retributive justice and his restorative justice. That word retributive, is, it's a big word, right? But think retribution. Okay, and here's a definition. Retributive justice is a measured delivery of punishment as due recompense for wrongdoing. That's a fancy way of saying getting what you deserve for what you did. Pretty simple, right? We all understand this concept, right? From the very, very beginning, our three-year-old, I'm telling you right now, if you give your three-year-old a toy, but his friend has a toy that's twice as big or twice as fancy or twice as loud or has twice as many blinkety-blink lights or whatever it is, he knows, your son knows that that's not fair, Right? And he starts freaking out. Because we know what we deserve. We know what we should have. And we know what other people should get. Don't we? We're brilliant at that. Right? Give you an example of, of God's retributive justice. This is through the book of Nahum. You were probably there just last week. Right? This is a prophet and it says this in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. My friends, we see the wrath of God throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. We can find examples of evil, perverse people groups that have been utterly wiped out, destroyed for what they've done and their haughtiness, their arrogance, their lack of repentance. God's retributive justice is final, it's powerful, and it's terrible. But did you see in the middle of that, in that middle of what I just shared, there was this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. My friends, his retributive justice is all-encompassing, but in the middle of that, we see a thread. That thread is called restorative justice. 
And God is all about that as well, and we're going to get to that part. Trust me. But who are the people of Nineveh? Let's take a look at that for a moment. The people of Nineveh were Assyrians. And if you know anything about biblical history, the Assyrians were some people group to be feared. They were a people group that was ruthless, brutal, evil, wicked, merciless. You guys have any other words like that? My friends, they killed infants. During wartime especially, they were absolutely merciless. They killed infants. They skinned their adversaries alive if they could catch them. They dismembered them. They gouged out their eyes. That's enough. Right? Nobody liked the Assyrians. If you were in the same region with them, you either fled or you were destroyed, basically. Nahum goes on in chapter 3, and he speaks directly to the people of Nineveh. He says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Nahum 3.7. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? These were the people of Nineveh. These were the people that Jonah was reluctant to go talk to. You think? Verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. If you remember, the first time was in chapter 1. In verse 2, where, it said, where God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God knows what they've been up to, right? But then he says, a second time, because he had that little encounter with the fish, right? Kind of got back on track, renewed his mission. The Lord's saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a full day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. My friends, this word overthrown in the Hebrew is the same word that was used for Sodom and Gomorrah. Nineveh is going to get utterly destroyed by God's retributive justice. And is it any wonder? Because you know who they were. Ruthless, arrogant, brutal people. My friends, we live right now today in a world of systemic injustices, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, right? And I think many of us long for the day when the wicked get what they deserve, right? When justice is finally served, when God will finally judge those who get away with literally with murder, who exploit the, the weak and the vulnerable. We want the wronged around us who deserve it to pay, don't we? Let's just be honest, right? Leviticus 24, 19 through 20 speaks to this. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given 
Amen. Right? That makes sense. People get what they deserve based on what they've done. You see, retributive justice, I believe, is hardwired into our society. And we've seen this. I've seen it, at least on TV, dozens of times over the years. Someone's loved one gets murdered. This person is judged by a jury of their peers. They're, you know, they, they're escorted out of the courtroom. We don't see or hear from them for decades, it seems like, right? They receive the death penalty, and eventually it's carried out. We see the family of the victim at the moment this person dies, and they're relieved. There's a sense of satisfaction that justice has been served. I've seen that so many times, and I'm sure you have too. So Jonah, back to that story. He tells them that they're going to be destroyed. But then a very surprising thing happens. Verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What in the world just happened here? Nineveh repented. Man and beast. Everyone and everything. They mourned their sin. They cried out to God. They humbled themselves before God. And they repented, my friends. They turned from their evil way and their violence. And what was God's response to them? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. My friends, that is restorative justice. Let me give you a definition of that like I did for retributive. Restorative justice is an approach to justice that seeks to make amends for someone's loss or harm suffered through restitution, repentance, and rehabilitation, often resulting in healing and reconciliation of both offender and victim. That's pretty significant. And that's much different than retributive justice. 
And let me tell you something. Jesus remembered the people of Nineveh. Years later, in Matthew chapter 12, the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to get an idea of who Jesus is. They're still confused. He's done lots of miracles, showed them lots of signs. In fact, in chapter 12, he performs two miracles. And then the scribes and Pharisees ask him for another one. And he says, no. Right? You guys have gotten all that you are going to get from me in that regard. Right? You're still not listening. He says, but you will receive one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. Right? Where Jonah is three days in the belly of a fish, the Son of Man will spend three days in the earth. Jesus right there sharing about his upcoming death, his upcoming burial, his upcoming resurrection, and the three days that he spends doing that. Right? And then he goes on to say this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Oh yes, something much greater than Jonah is here. The savior of the world is here. And they didn't even know it. Something greater, Jesus the one who died on a cross for each and every one of us. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. My friends, God's retributive justice must come to pass in this case. And yet Jesus comes to earth humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that he can fulfill God's retributive justice. But he dies for each and every one of us to set us free from the law of sin and death, and that's God's restorative justice that comes to you and I. Yes, something greater than Jonah is definitely here. Right? Amen? You see, the very people who were condemned for their incredible wickedness believed God and they repented. And centuries later, Jesus tells their story. That's God's restorative justice, my friends. When Jesus is dying on the cross, hanging between two thieves, and one of them recognizes that Jesus is an innocent man, but we are getting what we deserve. That's retributive justice. But he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And in that moment, he's relationally restored with a God who created him, even as he hung condemned on the cross. That, my friends, is God's restorative justice. When a woman is caught in the act of adultery and the law says she must be stoned to death, Jesus intervenes. He invites anyone who is sinless to come and cast the first stone. But you know the rest of that story. It ends up just being her and Jesus standing there at one point. 
He says, neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. God invites her into a better life. That, my friends, is God's restorative justice. And when a man named Saul presides over the stoning of a, of a godly man named Stephen and goes on to persecute and ravage the early church, and then he encounters the Lord on the road to Damascus, Saul becomes Paul. His life is changed forever. My friends, that is restorative justice. And I could go on and on and on and on sharing the stories from the word of God about God's restorative justice. But more than that, we could spend weeks having each one of you come up here and share your story of God's restorative justice. How you've repented, how you've experienced his grace and his forgiveness and his love and his mercy and his kindness. I wish we had time for your stories of God's restorative justice. Back to our story. <clears throat> We're actually going to just touch on chapter 4. Pastor Scott's going to go a lot more into this <clears throat> next week. But Jonah's pumped, right? He's excited that Nineveh was saved, right? No, 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 he's not at all. <laughs> Maybe you've read this. I'll read it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Somehow that's a bad thing? Well, it is for him. Because they need to get what they deserve. Retributive justice. My friends, let me just remind you, he was just in the belly of a fish for three days. Right? He had run from God. He was disobedient in his calling. But he received God's grace and mercy and compassion and kindness. But not the Ninevites. They don't deserve that, right? Isn't that so much like me? Not you. I'm not saying you. You know who you are. <laughs> right? Romans 12, 19, Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Interesting. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Maybe that's why seeking vengeance or revenge or retaliation will never adequately fill that void that we have that's from that loss that we've experienced, right? Because ultimately, it's God's job to bring justice. And his restorative justice brings restoration and reconciliation to broken relationships. That's what it does. You guys, I'm going to be wrapping things up here, but I wanted to share this story with you. If you've been here for more than a couple of years, you've heard this story, but I'm going to share it again because it's one of my favorites. I never, ever get tired of sharing this story. And I think it's one of not only God's restorative justice, 
played out. But it's also one of the greatest apologetics that I have. Because there's no other way that this could happen except by God's existence. Briefly, Rwanda had a genocide, if you remember, in 1994. I think April 7th it started. April 6th, people in Rwanda were gathering together. They were having barbecues in each other's backyards. They were going to each other's birthday parties, weddings, whatever. They were, they were gathered in fellowship. Uh, April 6th, April 7th began the killing. The Hutus rose up against the minority Tutsis, Hutus Sorry, the Tutsis were wealthy, the Hutus were not. They rose up against the Tutsi and they began to murder them. Over three months this happened. Almost a million people died. Millions of people experienced incredible loss, as you can imagine. Life destroyed as they knew it. Absolute evil prevailed. On the left is Peter. Peter was neighbors with Pieta. They were friends. She he was friends with her husband until the 7th. And then he came over and he murdered her husband right in front of her. He would have killed her too, but she ran out with her little baby. And she survived. My friends, Peter went to prison for that. Retributive justice, right? He got what he deserved. 26 years in prison or 25 years in prison, right? Paying for what he had done. Guess what happened next, though? He got out, right? He had no idea where to go except back to where he was from, to the very village where Bieta still lives, right? He's coming back from prison. He's feeling the guilt. He's feeling the shame, and he's afraid. He's afraid that he's going to run into Bieta, and she's going to make up some story to get him back into prison. So he stays in his little house. He's still in prison, in his little house. A prisoner to fear, a prisoner to shame, a prisoner to what could happen, and the guilt. Bieta... You can imagine after 25 years, she's now reliving everything. She's being re-traumatized. The anger and the bitterness and the fear. What happens if he runs into her? Or, sorry, if she runs into him somewhere on the street or maybe in a store, what is she going to do? What if he attacks her? Right? So they're both imprisoned to their emotions, to their feelings. And then they go to a workshop for one week. My friend Christoph, who's been here and spoken uh, with a ministry called CARSA, a ministry of reconciliation, he brings those two together. He brings um, other people together for this workshop. And through that week, they begin to work through all those things that we just talked about. And they join a small group. And after six months, Bieta forgives Peter. They actually um, get a cow. This is a program that CARSA has. It's called Cows for Peace. The whole point of the cow is they have to build a shelter for the cow. They have to feed the cow on a daily basis. The cow is pregnant. And they have to work at that together until that pregnant cow has a calf. 
right? So for almost a year, they work on this project together. Now, Peter comes to Bieta's house every morning and every evening. And whereas before, if she had seen him coming down the path to her house, she would have run in fear. But now she sees him coming to feed the cow. And she makes tea. And she makes little cookies in her oven, anticipating his arrival. And he gets done taking care of the cow. And then they sit together and they talk. And reconciliation takes place. My friends, how, how is that possible? How is that possible? But by the grace of God. God's restorative justice taking place. And the reason I can share that story with you is because I heard from both of them. They shared that story with me sitting in a room, and I heard from each of them how that was and what that was like. And I could see God had done a great work. And I held hands with both of them at one point, and we prayed, and God's Spirit showed up. Chris Marshall, a professor at Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, says the church fails in its vocation if it fails to proclaim, to embody, and to advocate the principles of restorative justice in every sphere of life. So what does that look like, my friends? What does it look like for you and me and for this church for such a time as this, for such a time that we're living in right now? I believe part of that answer is in Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says to everyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. My friends, what would it look like for us to be willing to lose our life for the sake of Christ or for the sake of the gospel or to embody restorative justice to others? Are we willing to forsake our own indignations, our own ways that we've been wronged or our opinions have been devalued or they haven't gotten what they deserve or they've done that to me? Or our perceived rights? Are we willing to die to those things? To deny those things? To give up those things? In order to see God's restorative justice begin to take place in those around us. My friends, Peter would never have been ultimately set free from his fear, from his shame, from his guilt, if Bieta hadn't done that for him, right? He had to go to her and he had to humble himself and he had to ask for forgiveness. And it was extremely hard for her to do and it took months. But she was able to give him that gift. And when she gave him that gift, it also restored her. It restored her by her giving her, by her giving him her forgiveness. She was now cut loose from the anger and the bitterness and the fear of eventually seeing him, right? 
And I think we can do the same in different ways. So what's the next step? What's your next step in all of this? What's my next step? Our worship team is going to come up here in a, in a moment and lead us in one last song. And we'll have an opportunity if, if you'd like to come up and, and pray with someone afterwards. But I have two questions that you can see on the board there. How far are you willing to go in your own repentance before God? How far are you willing to go in your own repentance before God? And then how far are you willing to go to seek another's forgiveness? And that could be the hardest part right there. That's what we're doing. This whole series on Jonah is how far are we willing to go? As God has already gone that distance, hasn't he? He's already met us with his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his restorative justice. Let me pray. God, this is a hard teaching and I can admit feeling just like Jonah, like why did you, in a sense, let these Ninevites off the hook knowing what they've done historically? But God, we don't know your mind and we don't know your heart. We don't know, in a sense, um, how you think or what decisions you make, but we know that vengeance is yours and you will repay. And we also know that your kindness and your grace and your love and your mercy is beyond what we could possibly imagine. And we are grateful to be recipients of that. We thank you so much for your restorative justice and hope brings us back to the relationship.